Hello everyone and welcome to RadChat, the multi-award winning first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. Welcome to a bonus episode in collaboration with the MR Linux Consortium. My name is Namanjoka Anderson and I'm joined by my fellow host Joe McNamara. So we're very excited to share this collaboration to showcase patient experience, clinical practice and research around the MR Linac. So we're very pleased to introduce our guest today, uh, Dr. John Christodoulis, discussing his amazing career and MR Linac-based research. Hi, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. It's really nice to have you on. Thank you for joining us all the way from across the pond in America. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And Joe, you didn't get to hear this at the start, but John has invested in a podcast mic specifically for this episode. Yes, I'm very proud of this this mic and I... (laughs) Yeah, I'm, I'm told it's exceptional audio quality. So. Um, so John, would you mind by telling us about your current role and how you got there, please? Sure. Um, so I guess, first of all, I'm a radiation oncologist, which is uh, like in the UK that you might be familiar with a clinical oncologist. But uh, in in um, in the US where I work, we, we generally we don't uh, prescribe chemotherapy, so we just manage the radiation portion, so thus radiation oncologist. And I actually have um, a pretty unique um, role right now in that I split my time between clinical practice at the University of Pennsylvania, where I treat prostate cancer, bladder cancer, and testicular cancer. Um, so that's where I practice clinically. And then I also uh, work for Electa in their medical affairs team where I help manage the clinical research collaborations. So I have a dual role and I've been doing that dual role for, um, for 12 years now. And, and it's, uh, you know, I re- it's unusual uh, in our field to have people who sort of split their time in this way. Um, but I got to say, I think it's fantastic. I really think that um, being able to practice medicine and be in academia, but also work on the industrial side at a more global level is, you know, makes for a very, very rewarding uh, career that, that sort of feeds on each other because I, I feel like I learn so much in clinic with patients that can inform how I, you know, support um, our industrial collaborations like the MR Linac Consortium, but also vice versa. Within the MR Linac Consortium, I get to see so much of the world and how they do things and get to bring that back to the, to the care of my own patients. So I think it's, uh, yeah, it's a great combination. I'm really happy I made that choice 12 years ago. Um, can I ask, what made you decide to go into oncology as your field? Yeah, the, um, I had a journey where... Um, I guess I, I first thought I wanted to be a pediatrician. Um, and, uh, I, then I later realized that I think I just wanted to be a father. (laughs) Um, and so I really liked children. Um, but I, I knew that I wanted to get to, to more acute situations that, um, that I, I wanted to focus on sort of the more dramatic, um, aspects of clinical care. Um, and that brought me to oncology. And then I met a pediatric radiation oncologist who, um, you know, showed off a lot of the physics, um, of radiation oncology. And I was a math major in my undergraduate, um, you know, collegiate experience. Um, 
And so I thought, oh, you know, math and physics, that's kind of my thing. And so I started to explore that. And then I was like, oh, I'm going to be a pediatric radiation oncologist. And then it turns out that uh, I, the, the math that I liked to do needed bigger populations of patients. And so that's how I got to prostate cancer. <laughs> and, and now I'm a prostate cancer radiation oncologist after that long journey. It's quite, quite a great journey, I'd say. Um... Yeah. <laughs> Why medical affairs? Why would you? Why did you want to split your time? Well, um, so initially when I um, joined um, Electa, it was to do a, a software-related uh, project, um, which I won't sort of necessarily define in detail. But I, I had this idea of doing a software-related project, and um, and uh, one of the the, the, my former boss in Electa's medical affairs team said, well, I think the only way that you could p potentially pursue that would be within the company rather than without the company, just for, from a practical point of view in order to push and figure out how to, which buttons to pull. And so um, I took a, essentially an extended leave from the faculty at the University of Pennsylvania to try to pursue that software project. But then I realized, uh, I learned that the software project um, was something that I wanted to happen, but frankly, didn't have a good business case. And it turns out that, uh, you know, it was, you need both for things to flourish. You, it needs to be uh, something that's valuable to patient care, but it has to be something that um, has a business case that can be self-sustaining. So I realized that and I was like, oh, well, I failed as an industrial physician. I'll go back to clinic and then um, sort of kind of on way on my way out the door, my boss and my boss's boss said, you know, there's this idea of combining an MRI and linear accelerator. And initially I, I said, I poo pooed it. I said it wouldn't, it didn't see the, the potential, but then we had dinner. I remember because we were in Hong Kong uh, for some meeting and they started to explain to me the power of having an MRI and, and what, what, what it meant to have an MRI attached to the machine and the, the huge diversity of imaging sequences that MRI sort of really entailed and all the potential opportunities there. And, and it was sort of like the scales fell from my eyes. And I said, you know what, I really do think that this has potential and I'd be keen to um, uh, see if I can um, support it. And and so I, I decided to stay on and, and try to work with the Emerlinic Consortium. This is now back in, this was now 10 years ago. This was in 2014 where I sort of realized that I'd have to shift gears. Um, and that's when sort of we, the, the Emerlinic Consortium started to take off um, we just started getting going, thinking about RMR Linac and how we were going to work with, with the community to um, design it in a way. You know, we we wanted to design the device so that it was addressing the critical issues that clinicians were feeling. That you know, we wanted to make sure that it was clinically driven. And so, very very early on, you know, right when things were still, you know, you know. You know, very, very much at the start of the development phase of things, we 
organized a bunch of clinicians, both physicists and, phys and radiographers and physicians, to say, well, what what should this thing do? And and that's that's been the journey. And then we've, you know, gotten to the design and the, you know, the initial uh, releases of the product, and we continue to iterate um, with the Emerlin Consortium. It's not a short process, is it? It is not a short process to to change the world. is a It's a it's a long journey. Do you think though that by having your input and the knowledge that you have from the patient perspective, but also from a physician perspective, allows you to contribute to such an extent that it does speed things up? You know, from an industry partner's perspective, you know, you must be like gold dust. They must be like, this is amazing to have someone with this knowledge and skill, but also be interested in what it is that we're trying to develop. Well, that's what I tell everybody, Joe, but you'd be, you'd be surprised. Um, no, I mean, I, I like to think that um, we have had a, a big impact and, uh, you know, I'm a small piece of a very large machine um, that is the MR Linac Consortium. And, and, you know, there are multiple industrial partners. We have Electa, we have Philips, and then all of these, this, these academic collaborators, including sort of the original inventors of the device itself, the prototype devices that were conceived of all the way back in 1999, you know, from uh, UMC Utrecht have been involved and continue to be involved in the MR Linac Consortium. But I, what I think, you know, just in terms of the positive impact, I really believe that we have managed as a community to accelerate both the technical development and importantly, the clinical development, meaning the, you know, well, how do you use an MR Linac? But all, how, what's the best way to use an MR Linac? And what's the evidence supporting it? I think we have done that better than every other major technical innovation that has occurred in radiation oncology or in radiotherapy. So if you think about the introduction of CT simulators in radiotherapy way back when, right? If you think about the introduction of IMRT, the introduction of proton therapy, the introduction of cone beam CT, I think we have have the time to demonstrate clearly uh, that the devices are safe and effective. We have had the time to get real, real evidence of value. We, we have rapidly accelerated how, you know, um, uh, how this novel technology has gotten to around the world. Um, one of the things that I found sort of very, just a, quick aside here about that last point about how how we've gotten this uh, you know novel technology around the world very very quickly um, I recall we had our one consortium meeting and I don't know where we I can't remember where we were we might have been in Toronto um, or outside of Toronto um, and we had a user from um, one of our uh, collaborating sites in China she was from Beijing um, she was a, a, a radiation oncologist and 
she said to me that, you know, for all the other big innovations that have happened in radiotherapy, they kind of happened in the US or Europe. And a decade later, maybe two decades later, had to be introduced to, you know, to China or, or the Eastern Hemisphere. It just, it slowly trickled out. Um, and now our collaborators in South Korea, in Hong Kong, in Beijing, they're incredible contributors to this journey that we're undergoing. It's really emerging globally simultaneously in a way that nothing else has done before. And I, in part, credit the MR-LINAC Consortium for that. I think one extra thing about the MR-LINAC Consortium is that you get to travel to some pretty cool cities across the world, from what you're saying. It's amazing. Oh, it's nice for that teamwork from, all, as you said, all across the world, spreading the knowledge. It's really vital. And I think from going back to right at the beginning, where you said your business case didn't work out, but obviously you've got to this point, it's how curiosity does make it into something that is viable as a business model and how it helps patients. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and um, that that sort of initial failure taught me a lot about what it takes to actually change the world. And, you know, in um, as a very junior academic at the time, you know, the, the sort of the most important thing I at the time thought I could, I could accomplish would write a good paper and get into a good journal. But you you don't just want to write the paper, you want to see the world change a little bit in a good way. And that's a whole another, you know, set of challenges and different sets of expertise and those kinds of things. So um, I think that that's what the MRLINIC Consortium is about, has been about, is to say, you know, we don't want, you know, a bunch of people writing little papers that never go anywhere. We want to create an environment where the best ideas are identified early and spread around the world as quickly as possible. We sort of solve that global impact problem in as uh, efficient as manner as possible. And that's, a lot of it is just, let's just get a bunch of smart people from around the world in a room. And that's what we did and that's what we've been doing and it's been very effective. What's the biggest challenge that you've faced as part of your role to date? Biggest challenge, um, well, the the interesting thing about um, this effort is that, you know, I sort of see that there are really two kind of pieces to the puzzle of, of really sort of advancing care. You need technical development and you need clinical development. So you need functionality, you know, to be... Uh, developed and vetted and optimized, right? Just the, 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 short, the sheer sort of tools to develop. But then you need clinicians to play with the tools, test, try different things, and then evaluate the outcomes, assess them essentially clinically, which takes a lot of time because sometimes you just need to wait for patient outcomes. And um, in some cases that can take months, but often it takes years, right? So both technical development and clinical development are intertwined. I almost think of them as like two separate, you know, they're like a DNA strands that are intertwined and you're sort of going up a ladder, but 
The next step in technical development really requires clinical evaluations and guidance, but that, that work has to wait for the previous technical development to mature, right? And so one builds on the other. And so trying to time it, trying to time the, the clinical research that is mainly what I focus on with the technical research that other people focus on and make, making sure we do that rationally, that, that those two different development arms can feed each other well, that's really hard because it's, you know, you never, each one comes with risks and, and uncertainties. And so how you rationalize that perfectly has been, has been hard. And, uh, and, and in some ways we, we, we set up research projects that, you know, weren't, we couldn't move forward because the technical developments weren't ready. And, and other times we, we'd have technical developments that couldn't be you know, leveraged because we didn't have the clinical research infrastructure in place or it was taking too long. And you know, those are some of the things that, we could, um, that have been challenging. But again, if I look back and compare how we did as a field you know, uh, for the emergence of 3D, uh, 3D uh, treatments and, and IMRT, where it was totally unorganized and very random. I think that we are, you know, despite the challenges and efficiencies that we face, we're doing a lot, lot better than, than what we've done historically. For your prostate patients, John, what, what are you observing clinically at the moment? What's the research suggesting? Well, um, I think what we have, uh, you know, the, the, the big focus in, um, I would say there are two big big areas of, of progress in, in prostate cancer. One is that we are able to treat um, intact, newly diagnosed men very efficiently um, and I'm sure Dr. Tree in your previous episode talked about her research with two-fraction uh, radiotherapy, and and I'm sort of, you know, the, the obviously I'm confident the Emerlinac, very confident the Emerlinac is going to make that safe and easy, and and and, but there's more work to be done, of course, to prove that that is uh, something that is reasonable to offer routinely, but. The history over the last 15 years, I'm, just, I'm sure you well know, is that we've been able to lower the, the number of sessions that a patient needs to come, come to, and there's a suggestion that it might be more effective, um, and the side effect profiles are really attractive. So there's that story of that we can take care of men with intact prostate cancer very effectively, with, with low sort of burdens on the patient from a toxicity and a financial perspective and also low burdens on the, the health system overall. Um, so I, that's one angle that I, that I sort of see clearly evolving in my clinic. Um, and then the other angle is the other side of the prostate cancer spectrum, which is patients who don't have early localized disease in their prostate, but rather they have developed metastatic disease. The disease has already left the prostate. And we are learning that, that with radiotherapy, 
when carefully and judiciously incorporated into a treatment regimen that includes systemic therapies like medicines that we give to suppress a man's testosterone levels, when we incorporate radiotherapy to sites of so-called oligometastatic disease, where they have just a few sites of disease, um, when we incorporate radiotherapy rationally, we can really extend um, the time that men are on each quote-unquote line of therapy. Um, there's, uh, you know, very compelling research, uh, as you probably are aware, from the UK, uh, this, from the Stampede study, RMH of the Stampede, sort of has helped us, um, you know, has identified that treating the prostate itself appears to be effective, and there's a, still lots of questions to be asked about it, and there's other smaller studies that suggest that treating not just the prostate, but also all the sites that you can identify, so long as that there are not too many sites, can really prolong the time that men can experience without, quote, any evidence of new disease or, or growing disease. Um, so very different ends of the spectrum um, where we are, you know, on the, on the early side of things, figuring out who needs to be treated, who doesn't need to be treated, and if they do need to be treated, can we treat them, we can treat them very uh, effectively and safely and preserve their quality of life. And on the other end of the spectrum, treat, you know, more aggressively than we have historically um, and uh, have, you know, Turn, turn these diseases into a lot more like a chronic illness rather than, you know, these, um, you know, late stage, end of life kind of situations that we used to think about them as in the past. For patients with prostate cancer, what's the inclusion criteria to get treatment on an MLNAC? Well, um, you know, prostate cancer is, is, uh, is a very diverse set of diseases. Um, you know, there are all these little scenarios that we have. Um, but I think in general, um, you know, the, the, the most important thing is to speak to your physician to figure out what the appropriate uh, situation is. But there's, um, I think the, the most clear sort of uh, story is for intact um, uh, prostate cancer. Um, so just when you're treating the prostate itself, um, but then if you do have uh, if you do have metastatic disease, particularly if you have metastatic disease in an area where there is uh, like let's say you have a lymph node in your abdomen and it's near a sensitive tissue like bowel, um, and I know I often use terminology that's very American terms for uh, uh, anatomy, and you can go ahead and correct me if I. I use words that aren't familiar, uh, that aren't commonly used in the, in, in the UK. But, um, you know, if you're near a structure that, that's sensitive, um, then that might be a good scenario for, uh, you know, MR guided therapy or online adaptive in general. Or if it's a moving target, like, a, you know, a, a, a liver metastasis is a great site, in my view, for... MR guided therapy because the liver lesions are very hard to see on anything other than an MRI. Um, so those are, you know, but again, it's very complex and the best thing to do is just to chat with your physician really to feel, to, to see where you, you might fit in.
how accessible is the treatment out in the US? Um, because we say here in the UK, it is very limited um, at the moment. And I just wondered whether that was something similar that you experienced or whether actually because of maybe the reduction of financial challenges that we face here in the UK, it's different for, for you guys there. Yeah, well, um, I, I guess I'll say two things here. Um, I suspect it's more accessible in the U.S. Um, than it is in the U.K. Um, uh, be, you know, just our systems are very different in that regard. Um, the U.S. there is very rapid adoption of new technology. Um, but uh, let me throw out uh, what I think is an interesting anecdote. If maybe I'll, if you had to guess, I'm going to name three cities in the world. And I'm going to ask you, I'm going to need four cities just to make it a little more complicated. Where, which city has the most MR Linux in the world? New York City, London, Istanbul, Turkey, Beijing, China. Which of those cities do you think has the most MR Linux in the world? I feel this is going to be a trick question. <laughs> Okay, it's a change. Okay, I was setting you up. It's Istanbul. It's Istanbul. Yes. You wouldn't have picked, I wouldn't have picked Istanbul until I went to uh, a conference in Turkey. And again, it just sort of goes to show that um, how technology is adopted is, is dependent on lots of like little subtleties of the local environment. And what's interesting about Istanbul and Turkey in general is that lots of patients travel to Turkey to get their cancer care, their health care in general. Lots of patients from, from the Middle East, from, from Northern Africa, from Sub-Saharan Africa, from Asia, from Russian-speaking countries, they travel to Turkey to get their care. And these are well-to-do people who are looking for higher end technology care. And so Turkey has set up what it seems to, again, I'm guessing here, they've made it easy to go and get healthcare in Turkey. Um, and, and so the Turkish population has sort of benefited from that because there's all this investment in high-end uh, technology and now it's available to the local population because it's serving the well-to-do uh, from around the world. Um, so anyway, it's, it's fascinating to see how, you know, it, it's it the pattern of adoption of, of high-end radiotherapy technology doesn't necessarily follow, you know, uh, if you look at the percentage of GDP spent on healthcare per country, you know, the U.S. is, is, is up there, obviously. But if you followed that, it wouldn't necessarily track with 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 adoption a, a lot of emerging economies are investing on this high-end technology because in some ways it it makes for more cost-effective care um maybe i'll just sort of say that uh one, one thing that inspires me about um mr linux in general is that that they have the potential not just to improve radiotherapy precision but they can also simultaneously have the potential to improve the radiotherapy access problem. As you, as you probably know, 
in the world, if you just sort of think about the global radiotherapy community, 50% of all patients in the world have zero access to radiotherapy, arguably the best cancer drug in the world, right? In terms of effective, like the number of patients that can benefit from radiotherapy, it's probably the best drug in the world, right? And 50% of all cancer patients in the world have zero access. And, and that's because training, uh, you, know, you need talented people such as yourself and physicists and, and oncologists, and you need capital, the, you need infrastructure, capital expenditure. And what I'm really inspired by is, you know, and, I, and maybe Dr. Tree and I talk about this all the time, and maybe she mentioned it in her session, uh, this idea that we can create a situation where patients are treated with such few sessions that they can, that they may be in um, some part of the world where they have to travel a long distance, but they can go there, get there one or two sessions, and then go back home. Um, you know, it might be 10-hour trip for them, or it might be days trip for them, but in that way, through ultra-high precision radiotherapy, we can do hypo-extreme, very extreme hyperfractionation and really increase access, but increase access in a way that it's not increasing access to sort of low-cost radiotherapy or low-cost cancer therapy. It's literally the best radiotherapy in the world, right? It's the exact same treatment that you'd get in London, but you'd get it into a, uh, you know, a lower, a lower income environment because, again, you can get so many patients through one device with extreme hypofractionations where you can just do in limited number of sessions. So um, uh, I can't remember how we got there, but that, that's sort of one idea that MR-guided therapy can address both precision challenges of radiotherapy, but also increase access to the highest quality of care. Can I ask you a difficult question in response to that? Sure. So on the surface, obviously, Joe and I are 100,000% behind you. That, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. But if 50% of the patients who need radiotherapy are in developing countries where they might not even have a linear accelerator, mm. how realistic is this in the next 50 years? If we divide up the world, I mean, I think if you think about the, um, maybe some of the poorest countries in the world like, that have no radiotherapy and no infrastructure, I, I guess I would say it's unrealistic to think that you're going to take a country that doesn't have a pathologist to diagnose a cancer and say, we're going to give, we're going to apply high-end radiotherapy, right? High-end radiotherapy is not that country's highest priority, right? So, of course, that is not uh, what we're talking about. But we talked about the most MR Linux in the world are in Istanbul. Turkey, if you, if you sort of look at GDP and, and the percentage of, you know, how much they're spending per patient on healthcare, it's not very high. And, and I don't want to say that it's um, poor, but it's certainly not um, a, a rich healthcare system. But here you are in Istanbul with a lot of MR Linux and the local population is taking advantage of that. So you get this combination of maybe the business case requires some medical tourism, some, some 
the well-to-do who, who are going to pay out of pocket. But then at the same time, you've got this device that can treat very efficiently. And, and if you get enough volume, people can travel to it, right? If you, um, within the consortium, uh, there's the, there's a physician, uh, Dr. Ali Hasni at, at Princess Margaret, who's a huge champion of single fraction, single session treatment for metastasis to the liver, right? And, you know, that may be appropriate for some cases with colorectal cancer and, and, and other types of metastatic disease where there's a limited burden on the liver. And he's, he really, he's a huge advocate and speaks very eloquently on, we can treat these patients with a single session with a very high dose. We can do it safely on an Imerlinac because we can see what we're treating, right? Well, so imagine a region where you have this massive population, you know, 250 million people, something like that, you know, in Nigeria and a little more limited radiotherapy infrastructure. Well, if you can treat a patient in one session instead of a protracted course, you can get a lot of patients through. And so the per patient cost starts to go down very, very quickly. And, uh, you know, you, you can sort of imagine I want to say, I don't know enough about Nigeria. I've never been to Nigeria. Uh, I just, just know that they're a very large country and a, and a much more limited radiotherapy infrastructure than certainly the United States. But if you imagine that there's in that 250 million people, that there are some of them who are willing to pay out of pocket, they could subsidize a lot of care uh, for that population if you can treat them efficiently, like in one session. Um, and it starts, it's not going to start with the poorest of the poor, because that's, frankly, it shouldn't start there. That's not the greatest priority, right? You got to have some surgeons and some pathologists and, and you know, you got to have more basic infrastructure in place first. But there are plenty of countries where, you know, I, I think that we could, where the access problem is, is incredibly, and it's an incredible problem where we can, I think, have an impact. And I'll just sort of note, um, I think this idea isn't just pie in the sky, because when I look at the membership of the our MR Linac consortium, it's, it's, it's a, something like 95, maybe 100 members. About half of those institutions are coming from countries that I would s characterize as the developing world or, or not the first world. These are not first world countries. So about half of those institutions, because I think they see it too. They see this opportunity as well. They're making this investment. And I think the local populations are gonna benefit. So John, what's next for you? What, what's high on your agenda? What can we anticipate from yourself, but also from the MR Consortium? You know, is there anything in the pipeline that you think the listeners will be eager to hear about? Uh, well, we're, you know, I think we've entered into the second phase of clinical development of MR-guided radiotherapy. The first phase was really, you know, showing that we could treat patients with the sort of the standard prescriptions 
safely and effectively, right? That the, the stuff that we do on our conventional devices translates over and we can, we can use this device safely and, you know, maybe do it a, a little bit more precisely. But we're all within the consortium, you know, these, this group of, of you know, dynamic researchers wants to do more dramatic things, right? They want to do paradigm changing strategies. And we are entering in that phase. Um, and, you know, we call it, you know, the hypothesis testing phase where you not only do standard of care, but a little more precisely, but you do something radically different. Um, and that's what, that's the phase now. And, and Dr. Tree in her episode, I'm sure talked about the two fraction. That's an example of doing something different. I think you're going to have Dr. Ghani, who's going to talk about using um, uh, MR, uh, using the MR Linux, using Unity to boost um, patients who have low-lying rectal tumors who are headed towards, you know, the colostomy procedure, the, 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 that radical surgery that, you know, where they then get a colostomy bag, right? Their, their, their bowels are diverted so they can no longer use their, their you know, they can no longer defecate in the way that they did. <laughs> um, so that's a, a tragic situation, but Dr. Ghani is going to talk about this protocol that they have been evaluating and testing at his institution in Germany, Tumingen, Germany, where they have managed to safely increase the dose of radiation to those low-lying rectal tumors to spare patients from going on to that surgery. They've managed essentially to preserve that organ for those patients and spare them that, you know, that debilitating surgery. Um, I, we talked about treating um, this liver metastasis in a single fraction. There are um, centers who are developing more technical innovations where you avoid a, a, a separate visit for a planning scan. Have you heard about the simulation-free did you talk about that with Dr. Tree, the simulation-free workflows? Where, again, if you're, th if you're thinking about the access problem, um, maybe just a quick aside here. I know we're, we're out of time here, but a quick aside. Uh, um, in the routine and standard radiotherapy workflow, you, you do a mapping session, right? You map the patient's body, and then you create a radiation plan, and then you bring the patient back to deliver that plan. Um, well... In areas of the world where the patients are traveling an incredible, incredibly long distance, that separate visit is a major burden. And now we can do lots of consultations online. So the great thing would be, couldn't can we avoid that visit? Call that the simulation-free workflow. Well, that's being, you know, tested in in Australia where travel burden is quite high. Um, and so anyway, we're in this, this phase where we're trying to do things that are radically different. That's, that's what we're working on. That I, I'm, I'm working with this lovely community of, of researchers to try, to try to create that environment where these novel ideas can be tested and evaluated. Some of them are gonna be home runs, some of them are not, and we gotta just evaluate them carefully and, and figure out what, what adds value. And that's the phase we're in, and, and um, it's gonna. That's probably the next, you know, five years or so that probably de dedicated to that for both me personally and and the Emerlinac Consortium. Have you noticed any um, 
like significant changes because of the impact AI has had on the work that you're doing. I'm just intrigued that obviously this work has been going on for such a long period of time. Um, and, you know, especially for us here in the UK, last three years have definitely seen more of AI filtering into pathways, filtering into the software they're using. Have you noticed that through the MR Consortium about how AI might be developing the techniques and also the software that you're using? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so much so um, that I think that what's, what's very clear to me is that, that the MR Linac is a prototype to a device that will eventually become uh, what I like to refer to as a self-driving linear accelerator, leveraging AI. And, um, you know, it's, I don't have to, to sort of convince you, certainly auto segmentation or contouring the organs, the, the normal tissues, we've all seen how wonderfully that can perform and that's gonna obviously emerge into contouring the targets itself. Um, there are bits and pieces of a, you know, of, 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 you know, AI is, is kind of fancy statistics, but those are uh, bits and pieces of, of fancy statistics that go into seeing where the tumor is and making sure it's in the right place. And auto planning is obviously, uh, you know, uh, emerging, uh, leveraging uh, artificial intelligence uh, methodologies. So all the, it's, it's told, every aspect of the workflow is, is being affected and it is this self-driving linear accelerator is going to happen all of a sudden, and it's going to be a great thing for, for patients. Sounds amazing. It's a lot to look forward to. Yes, absolutely. And there's plenty, when I say that, just to be clear, there's enormous still ton for us clinicians, ton for us to do. Um, we'll just take care of more patients who need it, <laughs> you know, uh, better. So well, thank you very much for coming on. It's been very insightful. I think hearing that perspective about how the consortium links across the world, um, I think it's been, yeah, it's been great for us to hear. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. It's been great to chat. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. And thank you everyone for listening to Rad Chat. So your hosts today have been Naman Chokra Anderson and Joe McNamara. If you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, please consider reflective questions posted along with the links to resources and literature that we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the form linked to the podcast and make sure you check out all the wonderful social media posts we have along with these episodes. So thank you for listening and take care. Mm-hmm.